Welcome back to the Read Connected podcast. Today we'll be discussing Universal Design for Learning, also known as UDL. UDL is an educational framework based on research in the learning sciences, including, and not exclusive to, cognitive neuroscience, human development, and so much more. UDL proactively guides the design of flexible learning environments to support variability in learning. UDL enthusiasts like myself believe that there's variability in learning based on the unique experiences, biology, neurodevelopment, and backgrounds that learners bring with them as they enter any learning environment. This could be in a digital space, physical space, really anywhere that the intention is to learn. Today, we are excited to be joined by our guest, Dr. David Rose, who is a developmental neuropsychologist, educator, and one of the co-founders of CAST, which is a non-for-profit research and development organization whose mission is to improve education for all learners through the innovative uses of modern multimedia technology and contemporary research in the cognitive neurosciences. Dr. Rose has also taught at the Harvard Graduate School for Education for over three decades and will share more about the work he's currently engaging in in this episode. When I talk about my own UDL journey, I often start with being invited to one of my graduate mentors' classes. Dr. Penny Hauser-Cram said, Alexis, I know you're not enrolled in this class, but I think you need to join it tonight. I have a guest speaker coming in who I think will resonate with your aspirations and how you talk about teaching and learning. Lo and behold, I distinctly remember being in the back of the classroom, nodding my head like a bobblehead at nearly everything Dr. David Rose said. This led to an internship, partnership, and countless friendships with colleagues at CAST. That same guest speaker who inspired me to work with CAST and to do a lot of the work that I do today remained and still is an inspiration and guiding light in my life over 15 years later. I... We, Gerald and I, are honored to have Dr. David Rose on the podcast with us today. Welcome, David. Great to see you, Alexis. I forgot that part, but I remember it now. <laughs> it's funny how things happen sometimes, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> but I'm grateful that they did. So, David, a lot has happened since you and I have been together. I think the last time I might have seen you is probably at your retirement party in person right before COVID. And over the last few years, I know that things have shifted as your role has shifted a bit. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about what you've been focused on lately. Well, it probably won't be a surprise to you, Alexis, but I would say a major focus is my grandchildren. I have uh, six grandchildren now, and they're all six and under, and they are smarter and funnier than I am and occupy a good deal of attention. They also are incredibly curious and snoopy so that when they come to visit, they get into everything. And I think you know that I at one time was a Head Start teacher, so I've had experience with kids this age, mm -hmm. but I've lost it and uh, I seem quite inept at dealing with them. And they, especially the two oldest girls, just pretty much have me tied around their finger. And from the moment they get here, they're in charge. And I just try to do whatever they, they say. So that's uh, occupying a lot of my time. And uh, something that's been fun also is I have been talking at sort of the local education agencies here. I live in Lexington. Which is in Massachusetts. Birthplace of our country, as they say in Lexington. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to explore some topics that I couldn't when I was really working that are sort of a little on the edge of UDL. 
but about sort of the intersection with music and art and poetry even. And so I tend to do talks with someone who is an artist or a musician or a poet and talk about that intersection between what's what do we know from neuroscience about what poetry really is and vice versa, what do poets know that neuroscientists don't know? And so those dialogues are have been really interesting. But I am doing one work thing that has been a major focus, which is looking at issues of equity that go beyond ability. I'm working on racism as a major topic, but sort of all of the isms, including sexism and ableism and so on, because we have been rightly criticized, I think, for not addressing them explicitly in the UDL guidelines or in our work. We tended to be over-focused on issues of disability and ability and those kinds of barriers and opportunities. And as you know, and everybody knows, it's very different to be dyslexic and black than to be dyslexic and white. And similarly, girls and boys and people from foreign countries and not foreign countries and all those things that we don't have an equitable culture in lots of ways. And so UDL has to kind of grow up and realize that in that context, we can't separate ability and disability out and that we have to be explicit about what should the guidelines and what should our future be about that makes better inclusion than we're doing right now. So I felt chastened by that criticism. I think it's completely correct. So I've been working for about a year on understanding the neuroscience largely of racism, but more generally about in-group, out-group biases of all kinds to understand what would we need to address as we design classrooms and cultures that would be um, more equitable. And uh, I also think there's some really neat things about UDL that would be great for people who do like anti-racism trainings to know, because as probably everybody that's listening to this knows that the work that's done on anti-racism has not been very effective by and large. And I think UDL does have some things to offer about why that's true and how we can improve our interventions. So that's been really compelling to me. I'm finding it important and interesting and um, dominating work. And I've had to learn some things uh, myself and some things that I've had to change about the way I am. And it's kind of hard to be mid-70s and seeing that you have a lot to learn, but I think it's better than the alternative. Anyway, so that's what I've been doing. First of all, David, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And before we dive deeper into the work that you're currently engaged in, I just want to rewind for a moment and share how wonderful it is that you get to spend so much time with your grandchildren. What an amazing privilege it must be to just be in their company. I just wanted to press pause for a moment on the neuroscience and music collaboration. I love that you're doing that work, as I know music is a big part of you and your family's life, as it is for me and my family. You may not know this, but Gerald is a singer, songwriter, guitarist, pianist, and he actually writes and performs and produces all the music you hear on the podcast as part of our intro and transitions and outros. Um, So I'll let Gerald speak more to that, but I will just quickly say before he does that there's such a therapeutic benefit to music, whether you're listening to it, playing it, creating it, writing it, producing it. 
there's something so powerful and interesting about that, that we have seen both for ourselves personally, but also in a lot of the clients we work with. So I'll let, I'll let Gerald say more about that. Yeah, David, thanks for sharing all those different aspects of your life right now, too. And I definitely hope that we can get into more detail about the stuff you're doing with UDL and kind of evolving it. When it comes to music, you know, my experience has been, I think this is related to your framework of UDL. We want to find different ways that people can express themselves. And I think music is one of those special ways that people can express themselves in ways they may not otherwise be able to do. I mean, it's kind of like in therapy, right? Things are emotional and Sometimes you need a different context to be able to express yourself, which is why therapy is so important. People can let their guard down. They can allow themselves to expand how their mind is thinking and their awareness level and really special things happen. And I think that's what music does too. I think there's a parallel between the openness that people have in therapy and the openness that can happen when music is created. I once created this, um, I don't know if I created it, maybe somebody else has come up with this before, but the metaphor of therapy for me is actually co-writing a song together, co-producing a song Wow! that my patient and myself were together and we have to almost like improv with jazz, Wow! try to understand each other, try to understand what's coming up and make sense of it, find what fits, find what doesn't fit, find how the parts go together and how they may not go together and so forth. So to me, that's, you know, that's kind of something that kind of spontaneously came up as a metaphor. And so I do think that the UDL principles of finding different ways people can express what they know in learning and education is, is uh, you know, that, that definitely resonates with me. Boy, we'll have to talk about that some more. Yeah, I'm very interested in this. I, I love talking with musicians and trying to identify. There's a great phrase that I use to start off, and when words fail, music speaks. That's beautiful. Yeah, I like it. And I agree that they're both, when they're most defective, both are going for emotion rather than, you know, all the other things like logic and truth and whatever. But good therapy and good music are are about getting to the core. And at that core is what are your values? What are your emotions? What's motivating you? You know, all of those things. Those are the things that therapists are interested in working with and changing. And so are they the things that musicians are interested in working with? I'm excited to dive deeper into the work you're currently doing because it's it's so important to really recognize and acknowledge all the different aspects and nuances of every single learner. And when I teach about UDL, sometimes I fumble on the word all because I grapple with that idea of are we really capturing and supporting all learners by working through a UDL lens? And of course, that's the intention, though there really is such a complexity in thinking about each individual learner and all that they bring with them into every single situation. When we think about all the different layers and intersectionalities of how an individual shows up to learn, there's so many different pieces to the puzzle that's really difficult to sometimes untangle. Or maybe we don't even, maybe we need to just look at the entire individual but we really need to be able to recognize and acknowledge all the additional pieces that are playing a role in how they show up every day. We talked about this a little bit in our last episode with Luis in thinking about intersectionality and you know, some of the traumas that might play a role in an individual's life and learning and all the different experiences that they've had. They really bring with them into every situation. And how do we best recognize, validate, and support them as they are 
trying to engage in learning, which sometimes might be difficult for varying reasons. One of the reasons Gerald and I were really excited to talk with you again today here on the podcast is because back in 2017, Gerald and I and some of our colleagues wrote a paper about using research-informed pedagogical practices, primarily UDL, to maximize learning in youth cognitive behavioral therapy, where we talked about applying the principles of UDL to therapy. And we talked about the nuance that's required in both therapy and teaching while considering the multiple facets involved in supporting and interacting with others. After the article was published, we were honored to present and discuss the paper with colleagues and friends at CAST. And after that talk, I remember you and I talking about your experiences and the beginnings of UDL, where it really started more in the clinical setting with doing a neuropsychological evaluation to identify what are some of the challenges that an individual faces and what are the barriers that are getting in the way of them accessing learning and having an equitable learning opportunity in their school. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your UDL journey and we'll come back to some of the work that you're currently involved in now. So I began life as a uh, high school teacher and I was interested primarily in kids who were struggling for one reason or another. So I asked for placements where kids were having difficulties or were considered difficult kids, one or the other. And, you know, it just reminded me, I haven't thought about this in a long time. I was in Portland, Oregon, teaching high school as part of my master's in teaching. So I had the bottom, what they call bottom track of high school English class. And I don't know, the fifth or sixth day of teaching and the door slams open and this African-American male student who was, I don't know, six feet tall, looked around the classroom and he couldn't spot me because I was myself only, you know, 22 or 21 or something. And I didn't really look much different than the student. So he's looking around and then I kind of raised my hand to indicate that, no, I am the teacher. And he just looked at me with uh, not exactly disgust, but with derision, like, you know, like, that's all you are. But anyway, and he said, I just got kicked out of one English class because they couldn't control me. And you're not going to either. And I, of course, was like, oh, my God. I am not prepared for this. Uh, but at any rate, he condescended to join the class and mostly played his radio, I think, the first day. But anyway, we had reason to both work together. And instead of viewing him as someone that needed remediating, this is sort of bragging about my role in it. But I mean, I think he was teaching me at the same time. And I think he realized that. All right. So... Instead of figuring my job was to primarily remediate him, I luckily began by asking him, what do you do? What, you know, what's, who are you? And it turns out that he was a very early Black Lives Matter, although it wasn't then called Black Lives Matter, but he was a black activist in the town, Portland, and gave very rousing speeches. And it was, you know, early in this, because this would have been in 1967. So I went to, you know, some of his talks and we got to know each other. And I don't know whether I convinced him or he convinced me, but we agreed it would be good if he wrote down some of his speeches so that they could be shared because 
the audience was small if it was only in live speech. And so I began to work with him on as an editor, but was able to teach English while I was doing that. But it was the important thing was, was coming from him, what he was writing about. I wasn't asking him to write about something. So he was highly invested in bringing out his speeches to a wider audience. And so we got along famously fairly soon. And I remember, I haven't told this story, I don't think ever before, but months later, the class has gotten a little bit noisy and kind of out of control, I think. And he all of a sudden stood up and said, hey, you guys, shut up. Mr. Rose is trying to teach us here, and I haven't got time for this kind of crap. And he essentially took over the class discipline, and he actually did a couple of really neat things. He brought his record player to school, and he would put it under his desk, and he would play because he said, look, while we're writing, how about we have some music? So I said, okay, fine. And so he did things like that that just made the classroom more tolerable and more interesting. And Gerald, given your background, having some music playing in the classroom was actually really good. So he became like a student teacher, and I was like a student teacher too. And he became a really good writer uh, over the course of the year. And I became a much better teacher because of his tutoring of me and I remember a funny incident when I got uh, my first time I was popped in by the head of the department to check up on me. The door opens and we can all see and everybody knows that this is scary for me to have the head of the department come in. And he just very softly puts his hand under the chair and takes the record player off like I don't think we're going to test whether this record is right for the head of the English department and just gave everybody a look like we're on board here. Mr. Rose is being evaluated. Everybody got the message. It was just like, you know, he knew what was happening. And everybody, they were model students. Everybody was answering every question I asked or whatever. The power of music. The power, power <laughs> of music, but also the power of listening to him first and realizing, finding out what, you know, I wanted to work on his English because his writing was terrible. But I think the part that led to UDL eventually was realizing that it began to get good when I looked at his strengths. What do you already know how to do? And how can we leverage and improve those? Rather than beginning by saying, okay, you're a lousy writer, so we're going to go back to third grade writing drills. And that I think that, if anything, was sort of a moment when I started to move toward a realization of how important it was to understand individual differences, who he really was before I could teach him anything, and what kinds of things we could work on that would be productive rather than what kind of things would be punishing and awful to him. And so from then on, and that wasn't the only incident, all of my students at that time were sort of similarly incredibly wide range of why they were doing poorly in school and would end up in my classroom. And that, though, really did galvanize me to realize that I couldn't teach all of these students as if they were the same. Not everybody would be interested in what he was interested in writing, and not everybody would be at the same level as him in any, I don't know, whatever. So that began. So I taught high school, came back to Boston, taught here, and then began a, an odyssey of looking to identify when do things go wrong for kids so that they ended up in these bottom tracks. So I taught all the way down through first grade and then head start in a kind of naive attempt to figure where does it, where does the, the match with schooling go wrong, that we're not identifying his strengths at all, we're only looking at his weaknesses, we're 
making him be somebody he's not and so on for all of my students. And after Head Start, I was left with nowhere to go but to go, what about the nervous system? Is that is the nervous system the source of these individual differences? You know, the can't go any further than this. So I, I think you know this story. But anyway, I began to, I went back to the School of Education at Harvard and actually first neuroanatomy course was at MIT with Wally Nauta, who was at that time probably the most famous neuroanatomist. Wow, yeah. And it was luxurious to sit in a class and learn something I knew nothing about and even got all the way to advanced neuroanatomy at Harvard Medical School so that at some point I actually really knew neuroanatomy as well as neurologists. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but all the other people in my class of advanced neuroanatomy were neurology uh, residents. And that gave me a feeling of solidity, that there was something I knew now, because all other work with teaching, I always felt like I don't really know how to do this yet. And here I am faced with 25 to 30 students, and I'm not really knowledgeable. I don't really know what I should be doing. So finally, I had something to bring to the equation and ended up going into being a neuropsychologist. And Gerald, you'll be shocked to know that for a while, I was an actual therapist, Mm. at which I was, I would say, not very good, and eventually became a neuropsychologist who did the assessments rather than the therapies. And I'd turn them over to people like you to do the therapies. And from there, I became more and more interested in the neuroscience of individual differences and moved to North Shore Children's Hospital, where I headed the what's called the Medical and Educational Evaluation Center, and where we saw kids were coming in, were having trouble in school for all kinds of reasons. From that, I'm sorry that this is going on too long, but I'll end up with, from that, we, uh, a group of us, a few people had computers. I didn't. And we were saying, gee, I wonder if these would be useful for the kids we're seeing, you know, the kids who can't write, the kids who can't talk. Well, what can we do with these computers that was just at the beginning of personal computers? Apple IIe was the sort of popular instrument. And so we formed a separate group called the Center for Applied Special Technology, that would have the kids stay after their evals. They would do a big four hours worth of evaluations of everything from emotion to sensory motor to whatever. And then we'd have them stay around and play with us with computers so that we could see, uh, try out, could these be useful in there in helping them do well at school? But even at that time, this is an important transition. At that time, we still saw the kids as in some way broken might have been because of trauma, might have been because of genetics, but the kids were broken because they weren't doing well at school and they needed fixing. But over time, I had a lot of time to go out and meet with schools and say, how good are our evals? What do you, you know, are they useful? Are you learning stuff? And the more we did that, the less I was impressed at how valuable our reports were. And they cost a couple thousand dollars each. It was expensive stuff. And I just felt like the more I talked to teachers and principals, it was like the kids got a label. For sure, we gave them labels. And so they would be dyslexic or ADHD or mentally retarded in those days or whatever. And then people had a label and a truthfully a bias about how to teach them from then on. And at that time, that was considered valuable. But what we saw was a narrowing of kids' opportunities rather than expanding of them by getting those labels eventually, and that their lives didn't go better because they got those labels. They all of a sudden, in fact, I'm liking that we talked about music. 
all of a sudden, like a child on the autism spectrum, when they got the diagnosis, they would be pulled out of chorus or band or something where they were doing well to take remedial eye training. So they would look at other people in their eyes or something. And we could just see that this is not a good direction for education to be saying, you can't do what you're good at here. You got to do what you're bad at. And we're going to do that all the time. And we're going to do applied behavior analysis and change your social skills and so on. And so we began to meet every week about what can we do with these, especially these new technologies that would change schools so that they would be more open to the variety of kids that were actually there and to the full range of diversity that books and blackboards couldn't do. And the more we focused on that, the more we saw opportunities to change schools rather than change kids. The schools we felt were full of barriers for some of the kids and there was very little way for them to succeed. And then we hit upon the universal design movement in architecture and we decided that we wanted to be how do we redesign what happens inside the classroom so that more kids would be successful? And if they needed to use new technologies, the school needed to use technologies. And that was a good thing rather than a bad thing. Because at this era, having computers in school is considered a bad thing. Anyway, and that began, finally we had a name for it. And Meyer was the one that came up with Universal Design for Learning. And cast, we left the hospital at that time as part of the story that's kind of, which I say, problematic because we, we were very popular as a clinic, so they wanted us to stay. But we didn't feel we wanted everybody to think that the children needed to be hospitalized. I know that they weren't being in hospital, but that they needed to be identified as broken in order to get our services and to get our diagnoses and then put back into schools the way schools were. So we eventually broke away from the hospital and formed ourselves as a separate not-for-profit and then began to work entirely on not the diagnosis of the kids, but the diagnosis of the schools and the curriculum and how do we identify what the problems are that schools are having in dealing with the actual range of students that they had. And that's how we got to Universal Design for Learning. Oh, that was way longer than I usually tell that story. I loved every minute of it, though, David. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as we share our stories, we sometimes pick up on other little pieces that maybe we have forgotten about that come into light and add some value in some different way. I have to say, David, over all the years that I've known you, and, and it's similar with Dr. Penny Hauser-Cram, who was a friend and colleague of yours, who was a mentor of mine at Boston College. Both of you are so great at pulling pieces together and to kind of build this tapestry of work that you're doing that is not just myopic on one thing. It really is in consideration of so many aspects of what's happening. And and I think it's a testament to the work you've done over the years and helping to push the field of education forward to think differently. And at the core of UDL, I think of it as, you know, we need to think differently about how we do this, how we approach teaching and learning. And like you said, not trying to shift and change the individuals, but changing the environment that make it more welcoming for individuals who think, learn, and navigate physically through spaces differently, a little bit more comfortable and feeling like they are more empowered. So I will speak for probably all the listeners here and saying thank you to you and to Ann Meyer and, and all of the individuals who started this movement because... It was much different back then. I think now we think about access as a convenience that we have technology, we have these different functions in our world, but 
these didn't exist back in the 80s and even before that. So we've come a long way, I think, in a short period of time. I'll let Jared take over. Uh, I often call my sister my uh, sister because <laughs> like, she gives me the assist. Uh-huh. And in some ways, you're kind of like the indirect assist because I didn't know about education or UDL when I'm going through my training. We don't get trained in that. And because I'm, I'm actually just saying this spontaneously, which is kind of what happens in therapy, you just kind of realize things. But I think the reason I think the way I think in therapy is because of the idea of UDL, because what you're saying is that there's a lot of different aspects that make a person who they are. And therefore, we need to understand all the different parts and to realize there's not a one size fits all for every person you're going to work with as a teacher. And when I'm supervising students and when I'm working with patients, too. It may be that there is one specific thing and I need to focus on that one specific thing at a particular time or for a particular person. But if I'm not actually even aware that there's other theories, that there's other strategies, there's other approaches to working with someone, if I don't even know about them, that's a problem to me. Because you look in the literature, there's no one therapy that's going to work for everybody all the time. It's, it's never 100% cure rate in therapy. And that's the same thing in medicine a lot of times too. So for me, I really want to just give you thanks while I have the opportunity to, because it helped me to see that I need to be able to understand other theories, other aspects, and most importantly, the individual I work with. And I try to pass that on to the students I supervise when they're training to become therapists too. I have found that really makes a big difference in working with a lot of different people and a lot of different presentations that come to me. And it's really benefited me a great deal in my work. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. You know, in this last year of working on on how the nervous system both gets biased and how what kinds of things we can do to reduce bias, even when you look at the detailed neuroscience, what is remarkable again and again and again is how many factors go into whether a single neuron in the amygdala will fire when it sees a person of a different ethnicity or voice is different, that everything matters. It's just not simple. And you can change whether a neuron in visual cortex fires differently. They'll fire differently by, by race, let's say. But all sorts of things matter what their history is, what the context right now is. What is this room like? What have they done an hour before? All of these things, which are noise, mostly in the experiments, but when you really look at it, you go, wow, it is complicated and human beings are complicated and there just isn't one size fits all solutions. There isn't one kind of therapy or whatever. Don't mind, I'd like to risk, I hope, because I think you probably have an audience that will know this, but I've become a junkie about, remember the experiment that's shown in every psych one class, I'm sure the gorilla experiment where girls are tossing basketballs and the subject is asked to count the number of passes. And literally a gorilla walks into the scene, couldn't be more obvious, and beats its chest and walks off. And 50% of the people don't even notice the gorilla. You know, it's remarkable. And so it's certainly one of the most famous experiments repeated many times in the literature. Well, I really studied this, Gerald. I I like went back because there's still people doing that experiment in different guises now, because I'm such a firm believer in what you said, that individual difference would be huge. So here's the reality of it. As I said quickly, although people forget it, 50% of the people don't see the gorilla, 50% do. Now that's a huge difference. You know, you have to think, well, that's a big finding. 
that 50%. So what's the difference? And then it becomes really interesting. There are all sorts of individual differences. Simply one that you won't be surprised at perhaps is kids with ADHD are much more likely to see the gorilla than typically behaving individuals. So actually you could say they have an advantage, you know, they're going to notice gorillas. So if you're going to have someone out there guarding your encampment, better have someone with ADHD because they're going to notice things while other people are, you know, et cetera. But you can change the results by all sorts of manipulations that have to do with how people are feeling, what they're valuing right now, who they are. There are populations of individuals for whom 85% of them see the gorilla, you know, and somewhere only 10% of people see the gorilla. When you see that, because that experiment is sort of taken as a one-size-fits-all thing. People don't see a gorilla. What a shock. But it turns out that there's all the individual differences you guys see in therapy or the teachers see in their classrooms, that it really matters who you are and what your history is and what people have told you about the experiment, whether you're going to see that gorilla or not. It's not black and white at all. So, yeah, I, I loved it when I found I couldn't I was so I was so sure ADHD kids would do better. I had to really find out how to figure it out, but I finally found the experiments. Absolutely true. But anyway, individual differences are huge. We'll have to come back together again, David, one time, if, if you have the time to, to talk about bias, executive function, motivation, and performance, because that's such a big piece of my work, and Jerry and I collaborate so much around it. Yeah. And I, Ned Hollowell has this really great way of thinking about things for ADHD, especially it talks about mirror traits that sometimes when there's distraction, that actually might mean you're observing and taking in more information that others might not. So really thinking about those strengths that come in. Right when people might see them as weaknesses or differences, they might be differences, but in a really powerful way. I have that conversation with with students I work with all the time. Yeah. If that was your IQ test, do people notice the gorilla? ADHD kids would be in the top quartile all the time. And we'd be saying, get more of those in school. How do we give them A's, you know? Yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) There's college students I work with um, who have sometimes have trouble in classes. And I say, you know what? I think that you're the type of person that once you get into the workforce, you're going to be golden. Yeah. You know, you just got to kind of get through school because, and and they actually do that. They go to like an internship or they go into a job and they're just like thriving, you know, because it just fits them better. How unfortunate it is to say you just have to get through school and then you'll do great. And this is where I hope that we could have a shift in the educational landscape because that shouldn't be happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, I forget her name, a woman wrote a book called Wounded by School. Kirsten Olsen. I love that book. That's right. Thank you. She came into cast too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's so true. So many kids are wounded by school. Just one of the traumas they go through and we need to stop that above all else. And I think one of the things that I have, I try to always uh, keep in mind, and I don't, I don't, I think this is a hard thing to do, but And as a therapist, I'm always working with different people in a kid's life or a person's life, wherever I work with the parents, the teachers, the family members, significant others. And so I guess I'm always trying to find a way, and I think we're all trying to do this, is to find a way to communicate to everybody involved that they can be empowered. Because I feel like nowadays, sometimes it feels like 
one person can take the blame for everything. And there could be reasons for that person, just as there's a reason for the student. There could be reasons that the teacher's having a hard time too. And I'm sure that's always in the back of all of our minds too, is like, that's a huge barrier too. You know, what's getting in the way of teachers doing their best job for the students. And there's a million reasons we can go into about that too, which is the hardest part about having conversations like this too, because there's so many different people you got to keep in mind about who's affecting and who's affected. Well, I think of you guys work on executive function that, as you know, executive function gets eaten up by stress. And so if we don't recognize that some kids are under stress and act as if everybody should be able in fact, that's a good example, by the way, if you stress people during the grill experiment, you know, et cetera, it really changes everything because what you're doing is changing the very thing that allows you to control whether you notice things in that way, that we all have this novelty bias to look for things. And actually what's happening in the gorilla experiment is executive function is saying, no, don't be distracted by the gorillas or anything else. Because actually the neuroscience shows that your brain registers the gorilla. It is not that it's not seen. Visual cortex lights up, sees the gorilla, and your executive cortex says, not, not interesting. We're counting now. The guy said count. We're counting. So yeah, it's there, but we are, and novelty bias is big, but we are in control here. We're counting. And in some tasks, that's the right thing. Great. And in some tasks, it's a bad idea because you better notice the gorilla. And uh, what we need is kids who know, when do I do that sort of really tight focus of executive function? And when do I look more broadly at my environment? And that kind of ability to control our executive function is what we want. Again, we could have a whole episode on just that too, because when you spoke about this at the UDL symposium, I think like three years or so ago, it really put things in perspective for me when we think about all these isms and the stuff that's coming up. I think that going through COVID as we did increased everybody's anxiety and stress level to a point where we're hyper-focused on anything that might trigger us. And I think that that elevated and escalated a lot of what we're now trying to rectify and figure out how we could do better because we weren't paying as much attention. Teachers and parents included. Absolutely. And I, you know, again, like you were saying, Jer, it's so important to have empathy and to to be patient and kind with everybody's experience, especially right now, because we've all been going through it collectively. And there's so much to tackle. I did a talk at an educational neuroscience conference a couple months ago. And I said, you know, why do we care about educational neuroscience? We're not expecting you as educators to become neuroscientists or psychologists, but it gives us a target to shoot for instead of just shooting without knowing where we're aiming. It gives us a little more direction and guidance by having that in our purview that emotions matter, that we can be triggered and thrown off kilter for different reasons. Sometimes our motivations might move us in a different direction. It doesn't mean we don't care about learning or we can't do it. It's just other things are getting in the way. So I'm I'm so grateful for conversations like this and for, you know, hopefully to reach the the broader audiences to have some compassion in these situations and I'm mindful of the time and I have two big questions, David, and maybe you can combine them in your response or maybe we'll have you back to continue the conversation. But we talked a little bit about this already. And here on the the podcast, we talk a lot about human potential, how to support mental, physical, academic, psychological, and even spiritual growth sometimes, because that's all a part of being human. 
from your perspective and expertise over the years, what do you think are some of those primary factors that activate learner or human potential? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piggyback my last question because maybe they'll overlap in your response a little bit, is where do you see the next you know, 20, 30 years in education going to be able to help us better activate that learner potential in what we do in and outside of the classroom? Well, I think I'll say something that won't be surprising to you or probably anybody, but well, actually a, a new thought, I've worked on the bias. So I've been looking at what are the, what are the biases? And some of them are things that are so ingrained in us that we don't think about them as bias, but our brains are incredibly biased to learn things. The most fundamental thing about the nervous system is this bias to learn more. That's what our brains have evolved to be, is not brains that do fast things or recognize things quickly, but brains that just quintessentially want to learn about the environment you're in. So that's why we're very adaptive. So but it only works if our brain is, as we call it, curious, exploratory, all of those things, highly engaged in your environment. And so we sometimes don't take that as visible as we should, but it's a huge drive that you can measure and see in the brain of just says, I want to learn more. And some of you know about dopamine, for example, just this incredible drug that gets released when you learn things. And it's a craving, which you only notice because boredom is aversive. It's really incredibly aversive. So it's like all of the other drives we have, that there's the two ends of it. And boredom is, is the brain's evolutionary way of saying, you're not learning enough. And it's aversive. So it's really quite remarkable to think about boredom because we think, well, being sitting there and not burning up any extra glucose seems like a good evolutionary advantage. You know, why waste energy? But that's not the way we've evolved. We've evolved to say, oh, no, if you're not learning something, you're going to feel aversive. And we call it boredom, but you're going to feel bad. And if we put you in solitary confinement, you don't have social environments where you can learn things from other people. It's the worst thing possible is to put you in solitary confinement. So, we have these brains that want to learn like crazy. And that's why it drives me crazy when we talk about kids and say, well, he doesn't really want to learn. Oh, I'm with you. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. And the problem is that we're not finding good things to learn. And, and then my story I began with about my kid was me finding out what does he want to learn to write about. Then I had endless energy. He wrote like crazy. So... Designing to learn is, as you won't be surprised, is about how do we get that engagement focused on things that are worth learning, but that means paying attention to what the kid is and getting engagement out of that mutual thing between teacher and student that identifies things that are going to be worth learning for both of you. And I'm hoping that our schools will be much better at that emotional connection that learning makes and that we begin, as we should in any UDL classroom, with engagement. But we have a big lever that the brain really wants to learn. It's not like we have to give it M&Ms to make it learn. That's just, I think it was a bad thing about behaviorism, which I was once, to view that we have to reinforce learning. You don't have to reinforce learning. The brain is going to want to do it. So we as educators, we begin with engagement, and that means making some 
good conversations literally with our students that identifies how do we get to the things that are important to you that you want to learn and that are going to make you the best you you can be. Dave, thank you for sharing that so much. And I can just give a quick example of that when I have seen kids struggle to learn, and that is the message, you know, they're lazy, they don't want to learn. When they've gone through the process of purging or resolving the emotional distress and the traumas they've gone through, all of a sudden, spontaneously, they're learning and they're open to it. And that, you know, is one of the best pieces of evidence that I can find about how true that is. People want to learn when they're available to it. And and like you said, teachers can help them to feel more comfortable if they have been, you know, traumatized or have emotional distress that's getting in the way. You reminded me of something too, David, and I want to give credit to Ann Meyer because early in my work with you and I cast, she and I had these great conversations. And when you're talking about these aversions and these barriers that get in the way, it, it reminds me of some of that piece of how do we actually get rid of the thing that is preventing us from being engaged and motivated. And it's so interesting that you all were kind of bringing these ideas together to formulate this framework that really tackles so many aspects of an individual's experience. And again, not that we need to do everything all the time for everybody, that would be exhausting and burn everybody out, but just to acknowledge and recognize that there is so much potential in the process of going through this and being curious and really trying to break down barriers and create access is I don't know. It, it excites me every single day. It makes me grateful for the work that I get to engage in. I feel like I walk in the footsteps of giants and I'm grateful to continually learn so much from everybody around me. And and David, if you were to share maybe one last thought to the audience or to the, the folks out there, you know, on the ground doing this hard work every day, whether you're an educator, administrator, caregiver, parent, student, what would you share? Boy, I'm not prepared for that question. So I'll say that I have not been bored this year. And it's because I'm working with two people you know, I think both of them, Jenna Gravel and Nicole Tucker-Smith, on this bias work and racism. And it has been one of the best educational experiences of my life because they're not exactly like me. And their experiences are not the same as me being a white old man. And it's in the exchanges we have that I have really had the engagement and excitement of learning. And I've changed over this year, partly because of their patient teaching and conversation. And I think that that's kind of a UDL approach that we want to be in situations where things are more diverse, that are not the same as me. In fact, I realized I wanted to say something that I learned just a few months ago, that neuroscientists looked at the face recognition area of cortex, okay? And it turns out in this very low-level part of the brain uh, that recognizes faces, you can tell if you put measuring devices that the person's seen a black face or a white face if they, if they grew up in the United States. So right away you can say, okay, so there's pretty low level kind of racism there. It treats the two races differently. And what they studied though was what happens when you grow up in a place in our culture or in another culture where 
there is as many black and white or whatever that there's a an appropriate mix. And yes, the, that difference diminishes. But the main thing is that they didn't realize they'd find is that people who had that experience of a more diverse set of faces to see were better at face recognition of all faces. In other words, the diversity itself made the face recognition area grow up, unquote, to be better than if you didn't do it. So it was like it stretched it and said, faces are like this, and there's a great deal of variety, and you're going to have to be better cortex than if we only used a narrow set of faces, people are all of one race. And I think that's what I'm experiencing in working with Nicole and Jenna, that by intensely working with them, I've had to expand my view of what bias, racism, genderism, all of those things are, and that that's made me smarter. And to get smarter when you're 77 years old, is you don't get too many opportunities. So anyway, that's, I guess, my sayonara is I want more experiences of things that are not exactly like me. Mm. And there's plenty of that. Yes, I appreciate it. I have this little plaque that says, I'm still learning. And I think that's probably the theme of today. And we're grateful for you and all that you do. And thank you so much, David, for joining us today. Thank you, David. Great to see you both. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas and is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you're in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but is not intended to represent the opinions of those we work with or are affiliated with. The Reed Connected podcast is hosted by Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed, is produced by Lauren Biza. Our communications and marketing coordinator is Colin Faley, and original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reed Connected podcast will be releasing a new episode every two weeks each season, so please subscribe for updates and notifications. And you can follow us on Instagram at Reed Connected Podcast and Twitter at Reed Connected. R-E-I-D connected. We're grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meantime, be curious, be open, be well.